All right. Hello, everybody. Um, I am with Luke and Julian, um, both of whom I've talked to already. And we've already had, I think, a, a conversation, the three of us. Didn't we talk about the Joker um, movie? Right. Wasn't that the three of us? I think it was. Yeah, it was. Um, so today we will be doing a three-hour interpretation of our take on the coronavirus outbreak. Um, detail by detail. No, no we, we will not. <laughs> just kidding. We, we, we said ahead of time we can talk about anything except coronavirus. Um, but anyway, uh, so we, we were going to start out kind of reflecting on the debate that I had with Chris Date that was released, I think, about a week ago Monday, although even though I think we recorded it about a month ago at this point. Um, so oh, I think I lost oh, Julian's back. Um, so anyway, I would be curious to hear your guys's um, reflections uh, or kind of first impressions. Oh, yeah. Take, I suppose one thing about the debate was just how much of it sort of flew over my head. Um, <laughs> it was when you guys sort of got into the nitty gritty with the Greek of the biblical passages and you know, this is, this means that, I mean, I, I just had a really hard time following it, um, because it's just not, um, yeah, it's just a whole big world I haven't explored. So yeah, that was, that was, there was some pretty, pretty in-depth stuff. Um, uh, maybe that's, yeah, I don't have much else to say. I, I think you guys would have to, um, sort of lead me into some specific topics. Um, there's not a sure. lot I could say off the top of my head. Um, I mean, when you are, I mean, number one, first thing I would say is Chris should, I don't know why he hasn't started a podcast or something called like debate with date or something. I mean, it's just catchy. He should do that. And he likes to debate, um, a date, debate, debate with date. Um, and then <laughs> The second thing is to Julian's point is first I would say welcome to um, the more academic side of the hardcore Bible-based exegetical crowds. I mean, they love that stuff. And Chris, Chris really knows his stuff well because he's studying Greek and doing that. And so he wants to sit there. And part of me loves that because I love grammar. I'm kind of a grammar nerd. But when you start Greek, especially, is... Um, there's a lot, like, I, I believe, I think I knew this at one time, there's something like 26 different verb tenses in Greek. And so when you want to start talking about verb conjugations and I mean, I don't know, it's it, English. I know the best and it's complicated enough. So let alone Greek, you know, I mean, most people can't <laughs> conjugate and talk about English verb conjugations, let alone right. Greek. Right. Um, and so that all gets highly technical. The one comment I would make broadly is that, um, and in some other conversations leading up to it that you and I had, Sam, I, I thought the tone of the conversation was uh, really excellent and it was really charitable. I mean, it's the kind of, as you guys know, I'm not a huge fan of debates. I, I have less faith in their, um, in their utility, I suppose, than a lot of people. But mm -hmm. um, but if one w was going to debate, that's about as well as you could do it, I Thanks. think. Yeah. Yeah, I think it, I think it yeah. went really well by all parties. I mean, you guys did a really good job, and you were prepared. It was just, it wasn't, 
it was conviction without dogmatism and good grief, the world needs more of that. Mm-hmm. Or at least the kind of dogmatism <laughs> that wants to scapegoat and demonize someone who disagrees with them. Right. Um, and and I just really wanted to, you know, it's it's hard to do that to some degree, but when it's a competition, then it's really no longer about truth seeking, really. It's it's about winning. And if your if your opponent makes a good point, then instead of viewing that as an opportunity to learn something, you oh, view yeah. it as a, a threat, right? And that's really yeah. the opposite of what you should do if you're trying to learn. And so like that was about as close as to the edge of a debate as I would ever really want to get. Like, you know, there are some Christian YouTube channels or some atheist versus Christian YouTube channels that are super hardcore debate where it's like 10 minutes, this 10 minutes, that rebuttal, rebuttal, second rebuttal, third rebuttal, cross-examination, blah, 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 blah. And like, A, you have to prepare a lot for that sort of thing. And Mm -hmm. I don't really want to do that. Um, But Like mainly with antidepressants. Yeah, right. And... (laughs) And like that sort of thing only appeals to a very narrow slice of personality, right? The sort of person who's going to sit through something like that and actually absorb it is probably a pretty disagreeable, uh, intellectually oriented person. Like my my wife would never listen to something like that, but she was okay listening to to the discussion mainly because she loves me and she has to. But um, <laughs> but like that was the sort of thing that she would she would go along with, but she wouldn't do that for like you know one of those formal debate kind of things. Yeah, and what I also love about it. For, for just people, for anyone who's not familiar with the subject, which is very similar to conversations around the doctrine of hell that I had gotten into, is that I think more than anything, if someone listens to it and they're really paying attention, trying to pay attention at least to some degree, they realize, oh, that this is, this is, much, this is much less clear cut than I probably thought it was. Yeah. yeah. You know, like there's a lot of complexity here and... And for someone who, I mean, I'm guessing the vast majority of people who listened are Trinitarian. Um, and so when... We, um, we lost Julian. He might come back, though. He'll come back. So, and when people are listening to that, they think, and you, and I mean, you obviously handled yourself well, and you're not dumb. Uh, so I think people, if people aren't being just really tri- ideological and tribal, I think it if nothing else, it opens them up to the ability or to the, to the potential of being able to see things in a different way, which I think is also always a good thing. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If there's one thing that I sort of regretted about the debate, we spent probably too much time talking about history. And I think both of us would have preferred to talk more about scripture itself. But, you know, time slips away from you sometimes when you're doing that sort of thing. Um, and, like, by the time we actually got around to talking about Philippians 2, we'd already been talking for, like, an hour and a half or, or yeah. something <laughs> like that. Um, but, you know, I mean, the history part's important. Um, and, honestly, I'm actually probably, if we were to compare my strengths and weaknesses against Chris Date, he's better at Greek grammar than I am, like, I will yeah. admit that he got a little bit above my head in terms of some of the Greek grammar and stuff like that. But when it came to the history and stuff like that, I actually don't think he, he knows it as well as he thinks he does. Um, yeah. So why, if I can just ask why, cause you, 
you had said that you wish you spent more time on scripture. Is that just, is that stemming out of um, kind of your Protestant convictions of like, that's where you think like follow the text where it leads type of thing, you know, Preston's tagline that he says all the time. Is that why you want to spend more time there or because that's where you think your case is strongest or both? Um, a little bit of both. Right. And also like, I think that would be what Preston's audience would care about more. Yeah. Um, right. You know, it's a very Bible centered podcast. And yeah. um, so I thought that his audience probably would have appreciated that. And also I do think that my, my case is better because when you're listening to history versus history, it's like a, he said, he said, he said, he says, who do I trust? Right. Like mm-hmm. Sam, this rando, do I listen to his version of history or do I listen to Chris's version of history? Um, but if it's, if it's scripture and the audience is already kind of familiar with it, then, then it, um, you know, it, it's easier for the audience to make up their own mind, perhaps. Well, I, I actually think the history piece is super important for, for Sam's case in particular, because I think we were, dis- we were discussing this um, via text. Um, one one thought I often have when when you have sort of biblical scholars digging into the text and saying, you know, this is what it meant in the original context. It's often a bit strange um, to sort of have this meaning um, given to the text that is kind of alien to how the early church would have read it, for example, or how maybe someone in the first or second century who's much closer to the text than we are. Um, so it's like, which which meaning of the text are we supposed to take more seriously? The one from contemporary biblical scholarship or, or the one from the early church? So um, I guess when that's a challenge that's that I think um, probably faces both Trinitarians and Unitarians because if you want to give the text the Trinitarian reading, which... Um, like you said, sort of develops in the second or third century. That's obviously um, a bit tricky to do because the text obviously doesn't use these Trinitarian categories which are developed later. But if you're a Unitarian, on the other hand, and you think you're supposed to go back to the text in its original con- in its original meaning, you sort of have to grapple with um, the complex... Um, witness of the early church um, mm-hmm. and how to reconcile that with your um, can I use this word and maybe this is offensive to you but novel approach to scripture because um, like when yeah maybe maybe that would be sort of a <clears throat> interpretation of the historical record uh, but but yeah it, it sort of seems like the this this sort of unitarian reading of the text just has to deal with the fact that people much closer to the text than you were reading it in different ways. Um, but I yeah. think that goes both ways. I think that's a really good point, Julian. Like Unitarianism has some strengths and some weaknesses with regards to history. Obviously our biggest weakness with regards to history is there's like a thousand years where there's no such thing as a Christian Unitarian, basically, you know, mm-hmm. say from, 500 AD to the dawn of the Reformation, maybe there was a couple random Jewish groups that survived, Jewish Christian groups that survived, but they seemed small and pretty insignificant. Other than that, the whole mainstream of the church was was Trinitarian for 
a thousand years without exception seemingly. Um, so that's like our big thing is that we don't have a continuous family tree, right? That goes back to the early times, like the way uh, Greek Orthodox or even a Protestant in a certain sense has, at least with regards to the doctrine of the Trinity, Protestants will have other problems with a lack of continuity for other of their doctrines, perhaps, mm. but but not that one. Um, but then the the strengths that Unitarians have in terms of history is that the earliest centuries of the church are just clearly not Trinitarian. But then the question is, is can you kind of hopscotch back in time like that? Can you reconstruct you know, an earlier worldview that has gone, it's almost like a Jurassic Park theology, right? Um, we're, we're trying to, you know, take some uh, stuff that we find in the sap of uh, early Christian history and turn it back into a living dinosaur again. And is that something that you can or even should do, right? That, that's sort of the weird problem that, that we have with history. Yeah. So one one thing I'd like to get more of your thoughts on, I mean, I think you guys touched on this a little bit in the debate, but, um, and this has maybe come up on the Discord through Jacob or something, but um, I can't remember where I was hearing this, but, but this maybe will pique your, or trigger your memory. Um, early, so New Testament Judaism and intertestamental Judaism, I, apparently, I heard somewhere recently, I can't remember if it was in the debate, that Judaism before Christianity, a lot of a lot of modern Jewish thinkers, they've kind of I guess the the there's starting to be new scholarship that there was a lot of diversity actually about how um God was thought of and whether or not um like how God Yahweh was perceived. Um like what monotheism yeah, yeah. really is within the first, um, like, because, because within, even within the books of Moses and what John kind of plays off in his prologue to the, to John's gospel is God, the word, the spirit, the breath. Apparently there was, I don't know. I heard somewhere recently, I can't remember where it was, that there was a lot more diversity and then the, as a response almost to, Christianity blowing up, Judaism kind of suppressed that history or, or mm. that kind of diversity that was there within thinking about God. And I felt like you guys touched on that in the debate, but I would be interested in hearing about that more. And I know that like Preston for Preston, his PhD stuff was on, well, it was particularly on justification, I guess, in, but it was on kind of early Judaism stuff and so maybe i don't know i don't know if he has knowledge about that or if he's followed the scholarship on that mm -hmm. but i don't know if you have anything just that you know about yeah. that sam i mean i think I he's think even written some you. books on the subjects which was why i was a little bit like man i have to when i was when i was giving my take on that subject i really felt like i was a you know a, a little league player stepping into the major league locker room or something like that but yeah I, I mean, the first century was an extremely rough and tumultuous century for Judaism, right? In 70 AD, the Romans sacked Jerusalem, right. destroyed the temple, and, you know, looted of all of its valuables, and suddenly there no longer is a temple where all of Judaism is worshiping in anymore. 
and right. seemingly some of the strains of Judaism go extinct, right? Like the Sadducees are never heard from again. Um, and sort of like the cave communities in Qumran also seem to disappear. So unrelated to Christianity and just related to Roman era politics, Judaism went through a real bottleneck at that time in terms of some of its um, branches getting destroyed, essentially. And then it had to reconceptualize itself again as a yeah. religion without its main temple and without its headquarters, essentially. Right. And, and so, so that, like, that is independent of Christianity's origins, a huge big thing. And, and then, like, I think it is true that Judaism did sort of counter-reform itself to right. against Christianity. But even then, I don't think that happened right away. Like Christianity was still way smaller than Judaism for centuries, right? I don't think Christianity was seen as too big of a threat really, or at least a, a rival in terms of size and power and influence until really right. the time of Constantine. Right. Um, Judaism would have far outnumbered Christians for two, 300 years. But that doesn't mean that they weren't interacting with them. Like, you know, Justin Martyr's dialogue with Trifo is between a Platonist philosopher converted to Christianity and a Jewish philosopher. And they're already arguing about some of those things. So, you know, it, it's interesting. I think in general, if this will be, I think I said this in a text to Julian, that my, my I think that there are Trinitarians who are over-exploiting the ambiguity of some of early Judaism's monotheism to try and shoehorn in 4th and 5th century Christian ideas into the, take ambiguous ideas from the Christian 4th sure. century, take, exploit some of the ambiguity of the Jewish 1st century and meld them together and voila, the Jews were Trinitarian. Yeah. And I, I find some of that not very convincing, but it is still an interesting idea. Like I'm reading Larry Hurtado's book right now, The Lord Jesus Christ. And one of his big points is like, yeah, the Jews were super monotheist and he's sort of anti, oh, there was complexity in Yahweh in Jewish times. He's like, no, they were, they were monotheists. He, he doesn't have much patience for that um, idea, but he is like, well, the Jews or the Jewish Christians very, very early on started worshiping and giving religious devotion to Jesus in sort he would say cultic devotion to Jesus from about as early as we can imagine in Christian history. And there was never any precedent for the Jews giving cultic devotion to anybody or anyone except Yahweh. Even angels, right, were forbidden from being worshipped. Moses and other, you know, superheroes from the Old Testament, you couldn't worship them. But all of a sudden, Jesus is worshipped alongside God in some sense from basically the beginning of Christianity. And that that is a new thing. That's sort of Larry Hurtado's big point. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think one of the, maybe this came, I think this might have come up in your debate, but um, the the Daniel 7 passage where you have the Son of Man being exalted to the right hand of the Father, I think that's um, that's just another one of those places where the divine identity becomes a bit more complicated because you have, you know, these two thrones, you have this exalted, transcended figure, um, 
the son of man. So, so what do you make of, um, you know, mono, how do you conceptualize that within a monotheistic God? Um, and I think even, even the word, um, the monotheism is not, not, a, not quite accurate in, in the sense that, um, as far as I know, the, the earth, the Jews, um, weren't necessarily monotheists in the sense of, you know, there's only one God. Um, there were, they, they did believe there were other Elohim, um, other lowercase gods, but, but they, but they, their distinctive was that they're only worshiping one God. There's only one true God. There's only one creator God. There's only one all powerful God. So, um, so there's that, um, there's, I think the word for that is um, henotheists or something where yeah. Uh, yeah and and I think another complicating factor is um, in the Old Testament you have these personified attributes of God where you have um, the spirit of God or the wisdom of God or the um, can come up with any others but there's there's many of these sort of attributes of god that take on this um personal form that seems to um that seems to be god but be distinct from god at the same time mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so so i think that's what makes the portrait so so complicated yeah and then when you come to the new testament um i think um i think chris state brought this up what would you make of the passages where there's sort of a narrative argument for Jesus' divinity, where yeah. Jesus puts himself narratively in the place of um, Yahweh? Sure. If you uh, could, you give an example of that. Um, yeah. So, like, the, and this is related to Larry Hurtado's book that I'm reading right now. Like, what? And this is something that I'm still just wrestling with. Like you know, like existentially wrestling with is like, what does divine mean? Because Larry Hurtado uses, uh, says that the earliest Christians treated Jesus as a divine figure all the time, right? He uses that word divine a lot. That's sort of what he thinks is unique in the Christian tradition out, coming out of Judaism is to treat a human as divine, right? He thinks that that's a new thing even though he seems to think that they viewed Jesus's divinity as somehow kind of earned. Uh Oh, my daughter's rumbling a little bit. She normally, she normally falls asleep again after about one or two minutes of rumbling. I'll keep an ear on that. You have to pause it. That's cool. Um, But so, so divine can, so if you are worshiping somebody, he, I think the word worship also had a broader meaning back then. Um, like worship is the same word as bow down, right? And and in the Old Testament, there's plenty of examples where people bow down to someone that isn't God. Like people will bow down before the king. Um, like Sarah will bow down to Abraham, right? And, you know, there's there's tons of that. And it's the same word it's the same word worship and bow and and it's sort of like an act of you know just reverence and submission but yet at the same time we're told not to you know worship it's almost like i sometimes wonder is there two meanings of worship are they really the same one 
like in here I'm, i might pause for a second yeah do it all right hi we're back after a brief hiatus um so i was saying something about worship and i think let me first say that a i think it is proper to worship jesus almost all biblical unitarians i've ever heard of agree with that right we'll sing songs to and about jesus there sometimes people will get in arguments about whether we should pray to jesus i don't think anyone thinks that jesus couldn't hear our prayers but most people think that it's better to pray to the father in the name of jesus um and even some even trinitarians will will say that sometimes too um, but some biblical Unitarians are totally fine and even encourage praying to Jesus to have your own relationship with Jesus in addition to your relationship with God. Um, I won't get down into that fight, but but that's a thing. Um, so, like, divinity. What does divinity mean? You know, like, I mean, I think, you know, things that I'll say about Jesus, I think he started his existence as a human being on earth, but is now at the right hand of God in heaven, right? Like we were talking earlier about how the Jews kind of viewed there to be like a hierarchy in heaven, right? There's God, Yahweh, who's the God of gods, right? The Lord of hosts. Um, and the angels are subservient to him. And it even sometimes seems like there might even be other gods that are subservient to him up in the heavens. And what I think the, the scandalous thing that Christianity did that was different than all forms of Judaism is it elevated a human being to be above everything except God himself, right? Like previously, Jews would have viewed humans as subservient to and underneath the angels in kind of both a, a literal and sort of a, a spiritual hierarchy kind of way. And the book of Hebrews is all about Jesus is a man, but he's now above the angels, right? And that in the age to come, humans will be above the angels. And I think the, the crazy scandalous thing that Christianity did uniquely that no Jewish sect that I'm aware of had ever done was to say that a human being is at the top of the hierarchy with the exception of God himself, and that this is God's human son, right? And all, all authority in heaven and earth is given to him, right he is sort of slowly reordering the principalities and powers and the of this world to be subject to him he um you know he jesus sends the holy mm. spirit down right like that is crazy a human being is put in charge of the use of the holy spirit like you know but that's what i believe and uh and that you can he can you know issue miracle powers to people and stuff like that and he reveals future events to like john in the book of revelation right although interestingly in the book of revelation jesus says he heard the vision from god and then communicates it to john and there's even somehow an angel involved in that communication so i think it's like god jesus angel john or something like that don't get too mad at me internet if i'm wrong about that but yeah, yeah that's why you go ahead julian yeah yeah, that's why you have the um, divine processions in the Trinity, right? Where you have um, this interesting relationship within the Trinity where it's, um, you know, it's uh, the Father sends the Son and the Spirit, but you, you would never say the Son sends the Father and or the Spirit sends the Father. That's just wrong. Mm -hmm. So there's some kind of a way this relationship unfolds within mm -hmm. Trinitarian language. So it's, yeah, it's interesting. Um, 
how you're making sense of uh, how yeah if, if i'm honest like it, it it almost sounds like um you know the sort of uh the, when copernicus comes along and the the old system starts to to fall apart and you have these these epicircles <laughs> yeah. um on the on the planetary drawing you know that's it's it's, it's almost what it um reminds me of though um yeah yeah well it's kind of uh, yeah he, the simplicity to it i think your uh, the your unitarianism mm-hmm. well even when you were talking um like it's funny because you were saying jesus sends his spirit and i mean he does say that in the gospels right like when i leave i will send you my spirit does right. he say that? it's good that i'll go to my father <laughs> right. because then i'll send the holy spirit and that'll be a better situation for you than even me being here right right and but that's i don't know what that immediately brought to mind was the whole filioque uh, <laughs> yeah. controversy yeah. uh between the east and the west of because really like there's i mean that's really the difference is um is the east would say you know the son doesn't spend the spirit everything comes out of god the father and so um it's not as if they their relationship is different and apparently from talking to andreas a little bit that's that is kind of what i think it's a language thing and i think the latin church would have said that also it was just different like the way that andreas explained it to me was like the president of the united states could send a message via like the secretary of state his embassy but like the message is still from the father from the president so jesus is like a a subservient agent or ambassador for the father but the spirit is subject the spirits from the father but subjugated to jesus who then can send it but its ultimate source is still the father yeah because i think that's the case like in which probably a lot of modern trinitarians don't understand but within classical trinitarianism every everything comes from the father everything Mm -hmm. yeah and so it doesn't but it's that but yet i think the difference and this is why i think having all these conversations with you and hearing these conversations is good is that the difference would be is that within classical Trinitarianism, they would say that the sun or the logos or what has is co-eternal has right. always existed and then was incarnated. And Jesus wasn't, was not, um, you, I mean, I think you could say Jesus didn't exist before the incarnation, but Jesus and the son and the logos were the same thing, mm-hmm. you know, like Trinitarians would say that, whereas you would, I don't know. And you got into that, but like that a Unitarian wouldn't say that. Right. And I think another part of this thing, I have go, go, go ahead, Julian. Well, this would take us in a bit of a different direction. Um, so maybe if you want to finish this thought, but I had a, a question about what you were saying before. Um, and it's theological interpret uh, in theological implications. All right. I'll, I'll finish my thought on, on that. And then I'll, I'll pass it back to you. <clears throat> Um, I think like one one sort of question is like, how does time fit into this, right? Because a difference is that I think Jesus began to exist at, at the Annunciation to Mary, or not the Annunciation, because that happened a little bit before 
whenever whenever the conception happened right, right. that's like the beginning of jesus and jesus yep. doesn't one to one connect with any preexistent being and then you know jesus lives his ministry dies resurrects ascends to heaven and then the father gives the holy spirit to the son for jesus to dispense at his will right that's i understand it as like part of the narrative course through time how these things connect to each other. Whereas um, the more Orthodox tradition kind of understands this as outside of time and eternal. Um, and then yeah. the question is, is like, how big of a disagreement is that really, right? How much does that know. disagreement yeah. matter? Because Chris Date, to, you know, to connect it back to the debate a little bit, he started talking about the idea of divine timelessness as a way to understand mm. it. Like, right, there's God up in heaven, and then there's Jesus who's running around. There's like the timeless mm. Jesus, and then there's the in-time Jesus. And part of me is like, that sounds ridiculous. But then part of me is like, well, you know, if you put it that way, we're not that far apart. It just depends on how real you think that Jesus, like, I think Jesus existed in the foreknowledge of God, right? Like, I think God has always existed personally. He, too. he had a plan, right, for how things were unfolding. And now we're like living in the plan, right? And Jesus existed in the, in the plan. Way. Yeah. So, so it's like, how big of a difference <laughs> is this if I just think that these things happen like in time? And, but is there a sense in which this is eternally true? What, yeah. what really gets my goat I, is I, I, think, I don't, I don't like uh, the idea that Jesus decided to come down. And I, I don't, I think that's not quite right. This, this idea that Jesus was up there and then he is thinking is like, <clears throat> all right, I'm going to incarnate myself now. That one well, just rubs me wrong. I, I like the idea okay, of Jesus okay, kind of okay. opening his eyes after birth. <laughs> Man, I have a lot of thoughts about okay, that. Okay, I have a question. Julian, go. Julian, go. <laughs> See, this is exactly the point I was going to make. Um, when you said you know, the central um, scandal of Christianity is that humanity is exalted to such a degree that it can be seated in the right hand of the Father. But I think the central scandal of Christianity is the fact that God would, would um, lower himself to such a degree that he would... Um, become human and die on a cross and i i wonder mm -hmm. i that, wonder that just is a what difference christianity would what christianity would be if if it didn't have that because for me that's that's just the absolute sent just the 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 god who goes to the cross is just such a profound infinitely profound idea for me that it just captures everything that christianity is about for me yeah and but what would christianity become if it doesn't have that i guess what's tough about that julian though and i don't disagree with that in a sense but then the question becomes what does it mean that god became a man because god the father didn't become a man that's impossible well i think i think you can you can still coherently say god became man this Though is when the you test start of to get how modalist are you, sun. Julian? <laughs> well, and it's not even, but see, but see, it's not even, I don't even think it's modalism. It's, it's, to me, this is why, this is why I really do love the orthodox categories of energy and essence and logos and, and 
even like Justin Martyr, and I mean, you'd say these early Platonists, you know, and Maximus the Confessor of Logi and everything, and panentheism. God is somehow, like I just went to a Orthodox before they shut down everything. Coronavirus. Um, <laughs> but uh, I just went to this thing where we were going through the creation accounts in Genesis, and they were just talking about um, traditional ways that we've always understood these things and how they relate to the creeds and but it's very much creation is such that he talked about like creation ex nihilo. And he said, really, that's not even, I, I believe this is what they said. That's not even something that's really present within the Eastern church because he said in Genesis, there's nothing, there's nothing about that. It says in the beginning, God and the spirit was hovering over the face of the deep. It doesn't ever talk about nothingness. It just says God and the spirit was there hovering over the face of the deep, whatever that was. And it was without form and void. It doesn't right. say there was nothing, but it was right. seemingly something without form and void. Right. And so, and so within an orthodox framework, I think there was, there's always this idea that there is, it, it, there's, there's God, there's the word, the word, the, what he speaks, God spoke, and then there's the breath. There's always those three, those three things. And there always has been. It's never been anything different. Than, and, I, and I think an Orthodox would say, like, that's also classically Jewish, and it's, and it's monotheistic. It's, yeah. not, it's not that there's anything different, except that that, it's, it's not that, it, that as if creation happened, and now it has self-sustaining existence. We're not deists. God is continuing to speak creation into existence all the time, or else it would cease to be. In whom so there we is, live and move and have um, our being. Yes. And, and so, so there's something intrinsic so in which God is everywhere. And then I would say, and yeah. then I would say Jesus, the incarnation, it was, it was a special type of creation in which the exact imprint of the Father in, in its fullness became a reality that had never been. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah. Um, that's it. So you're saying... Um, the this this incarnational sort of way of of, of seeing reality is um, is there even before the incarnation, which I agree with. Where um, this sense that um, God is everywhere, God is in everything, God is yes. um, um, everything participates in God is the way I like to put it. But I think yeah, it's it's that's, not that's one thing I get from it's not that everything is God. Yeah, yeah. God is in I, everything. I, I think, I think that's that's one thing you get from the incarnation. But the other thing is, this, this incredible humility of God, this incredible powerlessness of God, um, this weakness of God. That's that's um, that's the thing I see in in the incarnation and the, and the and the crucifixion. That I don't know. I, I wonder if if. A Unitarian reading of that has a way of um, thinking about the humility of God in the same way. Um, I I suppose the God would have to be pretty humble to exalt humanity to such a degree. But um, so let me ask. But does he ever come condescend to our level? I guess. Right. Let me ask Sam this because I mean it seemed like it seemed like somewhat you liked what I was just saying. So. So, I, I mean, I, I don't see these things as separate things. Like, I see, I see Christ and Jesus as the exact icon of God and the, and the, and the fullness in as much as God can be represented 
in creation to its fullness, whatever that means, which isn't the exact same as of the father, because the father is beyond creative expression. Mm -hmm. I mean, he transcends all of that. So Christ is the fullness in whatever way that can be, you know, the exact imprint of his nature, the icon of God, whatever that is, Christ is that, Jesus is that. Mm-hmm. Um, but but he is also human, so there is a there is this weird like what I was going to say before is like you said one idea that you don't like is that Jesus is up there somehow this logos and decides to incarnate. Well, I mean this almost gets I mean my theory of what agency is and what I've talked about with like the divided mind and the objective and the subjective and them lining up. Jesus. I, Jesus, the exact imprint of the nature of God, would have always had those things perfectly lined up. And so, like, Jesus was a human being in that he was making conscious choices, but he was never making conscious choices that were in any way out of step with the will of the Father. Right. So every step was exactly lined up with the will of the Father, and so his agency was was almost like an agency that we can't even comprehend. It's almost as if Jesus, he was making, like even to say Jesus was making choices, yes, but not in any way that I've ever experienced. Right. He was making the choices that almost God free. decided for. Like like in John, he'll say like, I don't do anything on my own. I do yes. the work that I see my father doing, right? But what's, the, what's that verse in the New Testament of like to, to um, Calvinists love this verse to like to um, to carry out the deeds that you have predestined or like carry out the works that you've predestined for me. What is that? It's in the end of like chapter two in Ephesians or something. I'll look it up. Sure. But yeah, so this is where I think that I can actually get pretty darn close to sort of a more Eastern Orthodox way, but I still sometimes feel some amount of real disagreement with a kind of more Western way, which I'll say Julian is sort of communicating right now. Like, I don't think God condescended. Like, God is alone, immortal, and invisible, and dwells in unapproachable light, and no man hath seen him or can see him, right? Right. Like, like that. that is what I think God is. God is above everything. God can't suffer god can't be tempted god can't die um and this is where like for me it's always like you know approach jesus as human first and then how he connects to god second so i i don't like the idea of god condescending what i do like the idea of and this will sort of kind of half connect me and julian back is that God accomplishes his will and purposes through weakness and through small things, right? Like God, when God picked someone to go talk to Pharaoh, he picked someone with a speech impediment, right? You know, um, God works in kind of the small things to accomplish his purposes. And that's how we see that it's him, right? God doesn't need Alexander the Great to get his thing done. He conquers the Roman Empire through, what was it, patient fermentation, right? That was the title of the book <laughs> that you mentioned. Ferment. Yeah. So, so God, God's strength is made perfect in weakness, right? That's a passage somewhere. And so 
I think that, you know, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? That is the condescension in a sense. God, it doesn't say God so loved the world that he came down as his only begotten son or something like that. He sends his only begotten son. And, and you know, God demonstrates his love for us and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us, right? So the the demonstration of God's reaching out towards us and condescending to love us is not in him coming down, but in him sending his son. So that so that's how I would sort of say, I see what you're getting at, Julian. I just don't want to place that inside God himself. I want to place that inside his son. But to sort of reply to, to Luke, yes, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In him dwells the fullness of Godhood bodily. That's there too. Yeah. I've, I've noticed that one too. Um, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. No one has yeah. seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son who's in the bosom of the Father, he makes him known, right? He exegetes right. him. That, that word right. there, makes him known, is the word exegesis, right? It's, it's how you can see God. Because even that verse, like it's somewhat mystical. Like if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You can't see the Father. Right. That's but you can point. see like, me. Yeah. Yes. Right. I, Jesus is the, the, you know, you will see heaven opened up and angels descending and ascending upon the Son of Man, right? Previously, yeah. Jacob in the Old Testament, the angels ascend and descend mm -hmm. upon the, the ladder that, that mm -hmm. Jacob sees in his vision. But now the connection between heaven and earth is Jesus, right? And like yeah. in that, yeah. this is something that I have appreciated getting to know you Eastern Orthodox folks a little bit better is like previously I thought your icon stuff was just, you know, veiled, um, you know, idolatry. idolatry. And <laughs> it's I, the opposite. I, <laughs> it's only, I, I still kind of think that sometimes, but, uh, but, but the idea that an icon, and this is super like Jonathan Peugeot stuff, like you see something deeper in it than the thing itself, right? Yeah. And and sort of like the how Jordan Peterson will talk about parables, right? It's like, you know, the story of Cain and Abel is a short couple paragraphs, but that you can just pull out of it and out of it and out of it. The parable of the sower is short, but you can just pull meaning out of it and out of it and out of it. It's like yeah. it's like a portal or something like that. Yeah. And Jesus is like the portal through which we can see God that otherwise we could not see. Right. And so, you know, that's a crazy thing to say about a human being. That's a crazy thing for a human being to say about himself, right? Right. So, so like, what the heck does that mean? And sometimes I feel right. like, like biblical Unitarians will stop too soon on that train of thought and just be like, up, oh, it's a human being, right? You know, therefore he isn't God, right? We can explain those verses. So therefore we've countered the argument, but like, you know, that is a, a deeply mystical thing to say and a deeply mystical thing to try and get a grasp on. And what does that really mean about someone if they are the icon, the image, the, the portal through which you can see the God invisible immortal who dwells in unapproachable light? Yeah, the exact imprint of his nature. And then what does it mean? See, I, this is why I love these conversations and I think they're so helpful because like, and then what does it mean to be united to Christ as, as we are? He is, he is the head, you know, the firstborn of all creation in which we are then baptized and born again and longing with, you know, with creation for the redemption of all things. Like we are, the body of Christ is 
part of him and so is mystically meant to participate in what he has already mm -hmm. had a foretaste of you know and i and i think that we just when the one of the reasons i really like biblical unitarians is and you i mean you're you're the only one i know so um i'm not sure if you like all of us <laughs> well <laughs> right um but is that is that i think i think you really help deal with sloppy language and with saying things that we don't really understand because i think easy or and there's nothing wrong with this again it's just it's kind of a nominal wrote re necessary way that lay people are going to experience religion jesus is god what do you mean by that you don't know you don't know what you mean by that <laughs> like when you start talking to someone that's a biblical unitarian it makes you think about that because even like even what um it, it gave me a little sympathy actually for chris too in saying that jesus is yahweh because then in listening to bo branson talk about all the you know uh all of the theophanies in the old testament of god he's like well yeah that that is yahweh <laughs> and you know and that is because um you can't um like any any revelation of god cannot be god the father he cannot be he cannot be expressed in any way that is mm -hmm. No man can uh, see him and live. Un, unmediated. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, right. you, can't, you don't get unmediated access to God except through, and I mean, this is where Christian, I mean, this is how I understand it in Trinitarianism, except through the Son. And mm -hmm. it's always been that way. Well, it's I would say angels. Angels. <laughs> so well, I, I think yeah. part of, part of what the, the first two chapters of the book of Hebrews are about are that the old covenant, right? The book of Hebrews is always about old this, new that, you know, right? Earthly this, heavenly that, right? This kind of dualism that actually is really kind of Platonist. So, but the the old covenant was mediated through angels, right? But the new covenant is mediated through the Son, and it's a more perfect covenant, right? There was mm -hmm. some sense in which the first the first interact the first covenant humans were interacting with God through animal sacrifice and through angels and that God revealed himself. And I think the book of Hebrews and a couple other places seem to make it clear that Jews at that time understood revelation to come through angels in a certain sense, but it wasn't as good as the revelation that now comes to us through the sun. Like a yeah, new the fullness. fullness has been yep. poured out. And that is part of the reason why humans are more important than angels. That's part of the reason why I spent so much time making that point is the, the revelation that the Old Testament was, and he doesn't use the Old Testament, but you know what I mean, was through angels. And the new covenant is more perfect because it's through his son. And, and Julian, if you need to head out soon, I would love to, have, to give you a chance to kind of have a, a last word or, or say anything else that's on your mind. Oh, um... Yeah, I can't think of anything to say right now. Um, yeah, um, I, I just think one thought I had on the debate was, um, and I mentioned this to Sam, is the different tone of Sam versus um, Chris. It, it just struck me that um, 
that Chris had, had this sort of apologetics debate type of tone where it seemed like every everything he was saying was, um, you know, uh, this is uh, just laying down the facts and you can't disagree with me. And Sam had a much more humble, um, open tone, which I suppose part of that is just the, the status difference there. But um, I did appreciate the Sam's tone more than tone more than I did um, Chris's because and <laughs> just for that reason it was um, uh, Sam's arguments were just more compelling because they they weren't um, they weren't delivered with with such um, with such a need to prove yourself to be right and I think um, that's that's often the problem with with debates is like Sam mentioned, because you're trying to prove your point, um, you you end up sort of absolutizing it, and um, and it becomes less compelling because things usually aren't as obvious as your rhetoric would mm. would like to make us believe. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think part Straight of that topic, is yeah. trusting the intelligence of your audience, right? If you think that you're, and Jordan Peterson talks about this a lot, perhaps, yeah. and, and Joe Rogan does too, perhaps just assume that the audience is actually smart and perhaps assume yeah. that the audience can understand things and can, you know, make up their own minds and stuff like that. Instead of you feeling like you need to have some sort of totalitarian control over what they think, like here are the facts, it's this way, it's this way, it's this way, this word is used eight times in the Old Testament this way, so therefore this word can only ever be used this way in the New Testament, you know, or something like that. You know, appealing to the intelligence of your audiences and assuming that they can make up their own minds and, and not trying to be forceful, I think, is, is more effective for, in many ways than, than the, the apologetic stance. Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's uh, the paradox of the cross where your weakness actually ends up being more compelling and more rhetorically powerful than this hammer down from the top type of approach. So, mm-hmm. yeah, there's I'll such be, a different, there's such a different spirit. Okay. And I mean, and I don't know, you, it's maybe not completely transparent to people, but there's a way of saying like, well, I could be wrong. There's a way you can say that where like you're saying it, like theoretically, it's statistically possible that I could be wrong, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, and then there's the existential and then there's the very earnest existential, like, listen, I could be completely wrong about this. I'm just telling you what I think now. Like, I'm not absolute. You know, I don't see things objectively. They're two com- same words, two completely different spirits, mm-hmm. you know, two completely different postures. And, um, and I agree, like one is very, one is very compelling. Um, so yeah I don't know it's Chris and I've said this to him before I don't know if I've ever said this to Chris before but when I was at a when I met him at the Rethinking Hell conference whatever a few years ago he has such a it wasn't just him it was also Preston was the keynote um, speaker at that conference that's kind of his public coming out of being a biblical, like a, an annihilationist. And, uh, and he just gave like all these texts. He just listed, I don't know, there was like four, 
no, I think he made it one page on the PowerPoint. It was just all these texts. And it, and it was like rhetorically in a visually powerful, compelling case of like, these are the texts that I think pretty clearly teach annihilation. These are the ones that teach or could teach, you know, eternal conscious torment, whatever. And it's almost, that's where I first came up with the term like exegetical waterboarding. And that's just <laughs> like, that's just kind of how um, Chris just has that he's good and he speaks quickly and he has a very he has a very high kind of computer processing mind where yeah. he's just quick and he, puts he can out a keep lot a of lot input. of information near the top of his head to unleash when he needs to and that that's impressive he, he is good right. at that right and it's just a lot it's a forceful thing because he's just like i could throw a lot of texts at you that he, you can just feel the weight of and that's I don't know. It just, it probably appeals to different kinds of minds. Like it's probably a greater appeal, appeal to analytical minds because um, people who think that, you know, which is funny because Preston was just talking about this morning. He live streamed his uh, <clears throat> like a church for the de-churched or something like that this morning. Mm -hmm. And he was talking about like talking, someone had a question of like, my parents are uh, fundamentalists and how do you talk to them? And Preston's response was like, <clears throat> basically i don't <laughs> he was just like people who um people who are just really cons like convinced that they're right who aren't open to changing their minds he's just like for the most part i just don't talk to um and he said you know whether and he admitted you know he's like sometimes that's me sometimes that's other people you know like there's just no point in talking if you're not open to actually changing your mind at least about ideas mm -hmm. and um and I think that's, you know, that's a true thing in these debates that you just, if, if people aren't willing to do that, you know, the analytical mind, the people, so he brought up in that quite Q and a, he brought up the book, the righteous mind. And he said, that's one of the most influential books he's ever read. And Jonathan Haidt in that says essentially that like, we don't, we don't base our decisions on rationality. We base our decisions based on a lot of things. And then we reason backwards, mm -hmm. but like someone who's, who, thinks they're really analytical in their mind is going to take all that information and just be like, Oh, that's, that's powerful. And that's weighty. Um, for me, somebody who, I don't know, somebody who postures in humility and who says, and who I, you know, into it is earnest is going to be a lot more forceful in my opinion. It doesn't even mean that I'll necessarily necessarily agree with them. You know, like I honestly don't think when it, so like when it comes to the, Unitarian Trinitarian stuff and again this is why I probably annoy certain people like I don't even think probably at the end of the day you and I disagree on anything really like I just I just think this is us being finite and living in time and working it out yeah sorting out our elephants to perhaps maybe or sorting out our writers to perhaps better understand where our elephants already are at yeah, right. I, I, I sometimes think, so, you know, sometimes I, I think that that's probably true. And then every once in a while, I'm like, eh, maybe there really is some differences deep down in there. <laughs> but um, but that I don't know how else to figure that out or how else to sort these things out. Right. And that's that I guess that's what I mean more than anything is not like, well, and this would get into all my propositional stuff, not like, are we 100% right and lined up on the propositional things? But if you are like Jordan Peterson said the other day in this video that I watched, which is a little clip from his first Joe Rogan appearance, but like 
telling your truth is the bulwark against hell. Mm-hmm. And so someone he who would I never really use bul- the phrase your truth, but he, he did does, he explicitly. Lied. Yes. I explicitly. Don't that's it. what he said. Put him on I will Oprah. send you, I'll send you, I'll, I'll send you the timestamp. But I think what he means by, and I don't think he was even misspeaking. I think what he meant by that is like telling the truth, saying what you earnestly think which doesn't mean you're speaking like objectively and you're speaking objective truth, but you're saying what you really think. Speaking your subjective truth is what guards us against hell. As long as it's, as long as you're not lying, yeah. as long as it's really true. And that doesn't even mean that like you're saying this and I couldn't be wrong, but you're saying what you actually think, which mm-hmm. is what I think this whole, which is what I think Jordan Peterson and Paul Vanderclay and the meaning crisis and all this is about yeah. is truth telling. Honestly. Right. And you and I had our each had our own um, butt up against the propositional boundary markers uh, with pastors and yeah. uh, statements of faith and denominational rules and stuff like that. And yeah. had to go through the consequence of I'm not going to I can only here I stand. I can do no other. I'm only going to say what it is that I think is true. Come whatever may. Right. And there's a way, and I don't know, and that's what, I mean, we've talked about this before, but that's what was different. And I think is different for me in orthodoxy is there's orthodoxy allows me to have personal convictions about things, but also submit, submit to confessions bigger than me because of the way that they, because of the way that they conceive of theology and and orthodoxy and what those things mean, which I think is of a completely different nature than Western faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, I don't know. It's it's not as if it's not valuable. There was some, it was interesting to me in, under you and Trip, and I mean, we're getting off topic now a little bit, but you and Trip had a little back and forth. Um, in your comment section. Yeah. yeah. And what was so like when Trip was saying like I almost when he pushed back right away I was just like, oh man, I just you know and and to Trip I would say like I do think maybe I'm wrong maybe like in Trip's church you wouldn't have been uh, excommunicated, I think you would have been. <laughs> I mean, so yeah, to I currently do go to a church. And the pastor currently does know about my beliefs and does currently right. let me take me let me take communion. And it is right. evangelical Trinitarian. I won't right. say what church or what denomination, but they have a statement of faith that includes Trinitarian stuff. Um, and so he currently Which is lets amazing me do that. To me. I mean, like I think he's an exception. I think he is an exception, and I I mean yeah. I have a lot of evidence that he's an exception. <laughs> right. Um, I would go so far as to say. He's exceptional. <laughs> he is exceptional. Um, uh, and part of it is because he believes in the eternal subordination of the son, which is basically kind of like the evangelical version of Bo, of Bo Bransonism, um, mm. where, you know, yeah. God is God the Father in the highest sense and Jesus and the Spirit come from him. And there's a little bit more hierarchy there. And so to me, I think perhaps part of the reason why he accepted me is like, uh, this guy is a little bit useful for me because he helps point out some of the ways that I think that the other kind of Trinitarianism mm. is wrong. Um, so at least he was open to the idea that, that, that there could be some 
way to disagree because most evangelicals like there's only one version of the trinity what do you mean and if you don't believe it then that's the definition of not being christian whereas if you've at least encountered the idea that there's perhaps different perspectives within trinitarian trinitarianism then that at least leaves you a little bit more open-minded and also right. i had had a personal relationship and my dad had had a personal relationship with this pastor for decades so i mm, think like helps. i needed both of those things to get to find this spot where i'm in um right and and also just to answer Tripp's specific question, I'm terrified to bring the subject up. Like you guys on this corner yeah. of the internet think I talk about it all the time because I do. Right. But in real life, I would never bring this up. Do you, like I would rather right. pee my pants in, in front of my Bible study than have to admit <laughs> what I actually believed on this stuff. Like I would, I've never agitated on this topic to anyone in real life, in real Christian yeah. communities that I've been in. And I would never do that because it's terrifying. So, right. so I, I was not, I, I did not get in trouble for that reason. It takes, it takes a special temperament. And that's where some people, like anytime you bring up alternate beliefs and how morality and these statements of faith and confessions bind and blind and exclude people by their nature, they systematize exclusion, mm-hmm. which I just think is almost like an unarguable point. Um, But I think people that, (laughs) I think there are certain temperaments and people that I know in this little corner of the internet who think that anyone who brings up a point is automatically trying to be divisive and stirring up controversy and doing things, but it takes a special kind of a person to do it. Like I am, you and I are probably different this way, like, because I will bring it up. I'm very, but like, this is what's funny. And I think people probably even misapply how I am. Cause like the last, so at both of the last Protestant churches that I went to, I was above board from, and had met with the pastor and explicitly said the head pastor, my, like where I was at with, in regard to the doctrine of hell. And so I said, I just want you to know that beforehand. I want to be completely above board. Um, I don't, um, like, it's not something that I would bring up. It's not like a point I was constantly trying to bring up and, and sow dissension about in small groups and things like that's never my, what I was always striving to do was find a balance between I'm trying to hold intention and balance all of these things that we profess to believe. Like we believe the Bible is the authority of God and that that's where we should get our truth for life. Okay. And, and, and we believe that that is interpreted and exegeted and discovered and read in community, not in isolation. And so I'm like, well, well, this is, this is an interpretation that I come to on my own. I want to do that in community. How do I, how do I do this in community and, and be honest about what I see there and talk about it and give my honest opinion, but that's different than the, the statement of faith. Yeah. Like, how do I do all that? Yeah. Like what would your prescription be? Mm-hmm. And I, and I don't think, and I don't think pastors and churches really have an answer for that. No. I don't think they, um, I think we're a weird I, personality type. I think most people are generally pretty fine with trusting a church and this is true of protestants and um high church people of 
just generally are inclined to trust their church. And maybe they picked the church also because the, they found that one particularly easy to trust, but they're more than happy to, to be there kind of for the spiritual and social reasons and, and you know, trust the doctrinal stuff to, to other people. And, you know, honestly, sometimes I wish I could do that. Um, but right. Uh, yeah. Right. For sure. It's almost like the, I mean, it's almost like you feel like Cypher in the Matrix. Mm -hmm. You know, like plug me back into the Matrix. Ignorance yeah. is bliss. Like it's way harder knowing. Right. Right. I want, I know it. I want, I just want to think at stake. Um, right. So right. let's see here. I have a couple different thoughts. Part, so one complication, this pastor that's been so nice to me is leaving. He is moving to a different church. And again, I'll, I have to be mum on the details to not identify anyone. So we're getting a different pastor mm. that is that I'm, I have not yet to meet in person. He's going to be an interim pastor, but I wouldn't be surprised if he stays on for the long haul. Mm -hmm. And so I need to set up a time with old pastor and coming new pastor and be like, how's this going to work? Cause basically yeah. right now I'm at the mercies of this current pastor who we both seem to agree is pretty uniquely lenient on this topic. And do I get to get grandfathered in and how long does that last? And what are the bounds and limits of that? So I'm honestly kind of worried that I, I might be thrown back into the frying pan again on this question pretty soon. And that, oh man, so part, a question that I get asked, and even Preston kind of asked this, I think, during my debate during the kind of intro period, is why do I mm -hmm. like going to Trinitarian churches, right? Um, perfectly valid question. One answer is there isn't a good biblical Unitarian congregation within an hour of where I live, and I live, you know, near the third largest city in the country. So it's like they're yeah, hard to come by, not right? a lot of them. There's yeah. not a lot of them. And so I'd have to go like an hour and 15 minutes, hour and a half or something like that um, to be a part of one. So A, that's a practical reason. But it's, I would be lying if I said that that was the only reason. If, mm -hmm. if that were the only reason, I would probably still do it. Um, I think that it's hard to be a good church, right? Like it, it's hard to be a good healthy church that isn't prone to cult-likeness and are other sorts of problems and that a lot of that's like inherited through the institutional knowledge and i might even say traditions of a church and that's true of protestants too right like even new big box evangelical churches are riding on a lot of tradition and knowledge that they've inherited through the history of protestantism for hundreds of mm -hmm. years right and um and a lot of new churches you know fail right like you know like one out of 10 startups succeeds, or it's maybe even less than that. It's probably about the same for church plants and new denominations and stuff like that too. So because a lot of biblical Unitarian churches are very young, most of them, there's a couple denominations that are biblical Unitarian that are over a hundred years old, but most of them have come out of a different denomination. Normally it's like some sort of Pentecostalism where the pastor was reading his Bible and was like, wait a minute, this doesn't make any sense anymore. This Trinity stuff can't be true. Google, 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 oh my goodness, biblical Unitarianism, and then they take some mm. part of their church with them, right? And some part of their church leaves, right? That, that's how most of these churches are. And then they're like reinventing the wheel, and it's probably not round enough to work, and it will fall off. So, so part of it is I like being in these denominations that have their act together a little bit. 
mm. and that um, that are healthier in many ways mm. than most biblical Unitarian churches, right? Like I grew up in a church that has essentially since died, um, and and that is you've talked about this before. You know, you want to leave your children with something that isn't um, vulnerable to collapse or or stuff like that. Um, and you know, I, part of the definition, like the main biblical definition of heresy, and this is very much from that Larry Hurtado video is trying to create division, right? I just have no desire to create division, right? Like when I bring up this topic to the people I have the guts to, I'm not trying to create division. And in fact, I'm trying to do yeah. the opposite. I'm trying to broaden the, the Overton window of theological acceptableness on this topic for the purpose of bringing people who are currently apart together, right? Yeah. I am not bringing this up so that we can start a new denomination or break off and create a new faction of, you know, Sam biblical Unitarianism yeah. or something so like that. So kind of coupled, coupled to what you were saying, part, I mean, that could be a reason why you go to Trinitarian churches is because you, you, th you actually believe your brothers and sisters in yes. fellowship with them. Yes. And I want to, right? I want to heal the division, not drive a wedge in the division, even though it seems like by bringing, right. even bringing up the question, you're begging the opposite, but I'm actually trying to do the opposite where I right. want Trinitarians and Unitarians to be able to talk to each other to get along and theoretically even this is a pie in the sky dream but be able to right. fellowship together right and it's yeah and i mean that was the exact same with me around doctrines of hell or anything is that i don't like that's where um i don't know i got into a disagreement with someone on the discord but it's even like i'm not i am not when I talk about universalism or something, I'm not being dogmatic about it. I'm not saying everyone has to agree with it. I'm not saying you're not a Christian if you don't agree with it. I'm just, what I'm trying to do is open, open that Overton window, like you said, of, of, um, so that we can honestly talk about this and the, and the diversity and the ability to have different convictions on this. I think it's, it's having, how can we have unity amidst diversity? Right. You know, how can we yes. be the body that has different convictions, different gifts, different thoughts, but still have unity? Mm -hmm. Can you not have unity unless everything is the same? Right. I mean, this actually gets into, this is a lot of what I talked about with Michael and Karen recently. That's the spirit of technobabble. It's, it's technology. It's sameness. Mm -hmm. Like without sameness, you can't have unity. Right. I don't think that's Christianity. Right. And you kind of see that sort of, um, well, I'll just hint at the topic of politics, but you sort of see that in the Democratic primary a little bit, right? Like, mm. you know, it, I'll just say vaguely, a political party could want everyone in their party to agree on the platform, right? And a platform serves a very similar purpose as a statement of faith in a church. Right. And right. so we need to get uniformity and uniformity will give us unity and unity will give us strength to win an election or something like that. But really, I mean, in a democracy, like if you just accept that people are going to be different, and this is very Jonathan Haidt level stuff, right? Like a lot of political opinion is actually genetic and personality driven, mm -hmm. right? right? And temperament driven and not yeah. actually susceptible to willing change, 
right? Like I can't just propositionalize you to make you more open-minded or more closed-minded or, you know, right. more extroverted or introverted or something like that. And so in the same sort of way, you know, a lot, some, a some fair amount of these theological divisions might be temperament driven, right? Like universalism versus conscious torment might map pretty well to openness, closedness. I, I wouldn't be yeah. surprised if it did. Um, and stuff like that but and God, it's not good or bad right it's it's right. just it's a temperament and it's two it's two sides it's two sides of a whole it's like yeah. the day and a night of a day yeah it's one but it's two sides of one mm -hmm. it's it's a bell curve and you need you need all of it cohering together and right. like you have to understand the strengths and weaknesses of each side and when they're appropriate and stuff like that. Nature wouldn't have allowed these things to propagate and exist if they didn't serve some sort of purpose, really. So, right. And you can be divisive on either end. You can, be yeah. you can be divisive from a conservative standpoint. It's like we need to exclude anyone who has differing opinions. But then like that's what's weird in American evangelicalism and even politics now is that you can be air quote liberal, say you're mm. liberal, have the label of liberal, but really you're a veiled conservative because you also have this set of prescribed rules that you will exclude people based on. That's right. a conservative impulse. Right, right. That's not right. a liberal impulse. Liberals are okay with people having diverse opinions. Right. You know? And that was the weird thing that happened to me on campus was when that LGBT stuff where the, the LGBT groups wanted the Christian groups kicked off campus, right? Yeah. And that, yeah. that was like that weird, the weird inversion of open-mindedness and closed-mindedness. Um, so, so yeah. Anyone who wants to divide, man, those right. are the heretics. That's the heretics. That is the heretics. But even then, to give the her that, that, that kind of heretic their due, there does need to be unity somehow, right? There, unity happens somehow. And there is some amount of commonality needed for unity to function yeah well yeah true so then you could ask like what is unity and this is why i love i love the or what is love or what this is why i like the biblical metaphors and they're even more than metaphors of like body the body of christ or the family of christ or whatever like you know my wife and me or me and my kids um well, and I, you know, I even have an adopted daughter. So do I love them? Do I love, or my wife, do I love my family just because of genetics? Mm -hmm. Well, no, my wife doesn't have my genetics. My adopted mm -hmm. daughter doesn't have my genetics. Um, do I love my wife? Well, I mean, you know, I loved her before we had kids. So now we have these kids in common that share our genetics, but it's more than that. My wife is very different than me. Temperamentally, we're almost opposites. Me and my wife are virtually opposites too. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't love her because she just, I mean, I love her in a way almost because she compliments me, but it's not just that. It's not like I was making, like Paul says, a used car sale when I married her. Right. Like I wasn't thinking like, oh, we're really different. She She compliments me and she'll be like the opposite side of my battery. Uh -huh. and some kind of Taoistic balance. Like I wasn't thinking this kind of stuff. Um, I was, I mean, all of this stuff is intuitive and instinctual almost. Like I knew right away, my wife, like she's smart mm -hmm. and she's not a pushover and I have a pretty strong personality. And so, and I, I think I just knew all that instinctually. Like I knew I needed someone who wasn't, uh, 
I want like iron sharpens iron, like Jordan Peterson says, like I wanted, do you want a spouse that's just going to like, how does he say that? Just be like a, a yes man who just mm-hmm. is somewhat almost like, um, what's the word? Like a uh, codependent, you know, kind of like subservient, just feeding your ego type of a person? Or do you want somebody who's really going to challenge you? Who's going to tell you stuff you don't want to hear? Who's going to, they're going to love you and support you. Like the unity that they are for you. Like, so that's a good example of how I think church should be. My wife is for me. Very often she pisses me off. But, but, and, and she's not perfect. Some of that, sometimes she's an heir. Sometimes she's not. Sometimes she's just not letting me get away with crap I shouldn't be getting away with. But she is completely for me. And we have unity and we have love, but it's not because we have sameness. Right. Right. Across the board. That's how a church should be. Like it's just right. I, I also don't think it's that complicated. Right. It's hard. And it's it's just it's in Christ, right? Like that's just the simplest answer to what a church what 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 unites a church is is the focus on being one in Christ, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, that it brings up interesting questions about, like, say, I don't know, Mormons or something like that. But, um, but that, that at the end of the day is really the only answer I have for, for what should be the rules of what unifies people into a church. Yeah, is, belief is and in faith. Christ. Belief and faith in Christ, and then it gets into, and this is why I love Jordan Peterson, is what is belief? Belief mm-hmm. is a lot more act as if than conscious, articulated affirmation of facts. Yes, because Satan knows more facts about Jesus than we ever will, or well, maybe right. not ever, than we currently do. Satan knows way more about him than we do, and yeah. that's not his problem. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so that's good. I guess I have a question to change subjects a little bit back to the main thread of conversation. <laughs> so, so th- this was, I was lodging this in my head. This is a question for you. So logos, right? God's logos. word, God, God speaks, creates things, right? That's God's word in some sense that's connected to Jesus somehow. Like one thing that bothers me about sort of incarnationalism is like, well, was the logos not up in heaven for 30 years or something like that? You know, was uh, was his desk empty uh, up in the, the heavenly court uh, or something like that? So so exactly how do you connect um, the uh, Jesus with logos and how does that relate to sort of the heavenly stuff? Hmm. The heavenly stuff. Well, I don't know. So I guess I would probably need more clarification, and I don't even know what I think about it, of what you mean by heavenly. I guess to give you just like the bird's eye view of how I conceive of heavenly is, and heaven is, it's a heaven, heaven and earth. I think even biblically and philosophically, theologically is more about, it's either equally or even more so about quality versus locale. Sure. Um, My, I actually agree with that. My daughter's waking up. Do you want to, I hate to do this to you. Do you want to do like a one or two minute summary of your answer? And then I probably got to go maybe even sooner than that. 
yeah. So I mean, maybe the what popped into my mind was almost like a Neo in the Matrix, like Jesus in the incarnation of Logos. It's kind of what we said before. Somehow it was the fullness of the logos in a way even though the logos is everywhere it's in everything it's what in him we live and move and have our being but somehow the logos was concentrated in a man in a particular and unique way and and i don't think that that means that the logos ceased being in everything else because everything else continued to exist god and his energies was still everywhere but jesus somehow like i don't think it means like all of a sudden jesus had to stop or the logos had to stop or the expression of God in creation stopped when Jesus came. It was just somehow, a. I mean, I don't have a, I don't have a formulaic way to understand that. I just don't see those as having to be in conflict, I guess. Yeah. And that, that's very close to me, right? That, that I is think we're pretty close. I think really. we're pretty close. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, on our note of unity, uh, I, I will have to go and uh, take care of my daughter now that she's woken okay. up. Okay. All uh, right. Bye, Sam's daughter. <laughs>